Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to a special GCP Live episode coming to you from the Connecticut Captive Insurance Association's annual collaborative event. I am Richard Kutcher, and for the benefit of our pod listeners, uh, I am sadly not actually in the room in Hartford with my free expert guests and live audience. Unfortunately, I am stuck in my London flat as our spirits are only allowed into the United States from the 8th of November. So this conference taking place on the 4th of November has come just a few days too early for me. But my good friends at CTCIA have made it possible for me to join and record this episode using the wonders of Zoom. I should also add that our guests and live audience can see me, but I cannot see them, which should make things a little interesting. So Cassie, no side eyes or, or pulling faces at what, what, what I say. I'm sure I'll get reported um, afterwards. However, there are some benefits of me being on the other side of the pond, as that means as it's almost 8pm here, there's absolutely no shame in me cracking open a can of beer. So I'll just say cheers to everyone in Connecticut. And um, I'm with you in spirit for your drinks reception later on. Let me just um, have a quick uh, swig of this. And Richard, I should tell them we did have a bet between Italy and England played in the Euro finals. And as we were planning this, I did bet him. I think I bet Thomas Hooker Ale and a couple other Connecticut specialties. You bet some great English ones. And we will collect those in person for the Italian win at some point. Yeah, yeah, let's not go into that too much, BJ, because I still haven't quite recovered from uh, us being knocked out in our national sport, in our own national stadium on penalties in the in our first final since 1966. But yeah, it was a very generous bet and I look forward to giving you all those winnings uh, in a few months' time when I do make it over. But it is time to introduce uh, the rest of our guests and I'm delighted to be joined by uh, a regular from GCP episodes, Cassie Buckman, Managing Director of Operations and Legal at Elevate Risk Solutions and a CTCI a board member. Cassie, good to have you back on. Hi. And uh, Jack Muskunas, an executive director for investments at Oppenheimer and Company and a captive insurance asset management advisor. Welcome, Jack. Thank you, Richard. And as you've just heard, PJ Samini, founder and principal at Capital Strategies Group and of course, president of the Connecticut Captive Insurance Association. So PJ, thank you for hosting the first GCP live episode. We had hoped to do some of these just when the pandemic hit in 2020. So it's great to finally do our first one. And hopefully I'll be with you in person next year. So over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to be focusing on the cannabis industry and particularly the domestic landscape for establishing captives, ensuring the risk of legalized cannabis business here in the United States. Now, Anyone who is a regular listener and has heard uh, episode 52 of the Global Captive podcast and or read our latest GCP Insights magazine will know that we have seen a couple of large Canadian multinationals that operate in the legalized cannabis industry set up captives, particularly in Bermuda. Uh, the two companies that are relatively uh, public knowledge are DNA Genetics and Canopy Growth Corporation. And we actually had the chief legal officer of the former of those companies, DNA Genetics, on, on that episode of the podcast. Podcast uh, explaining what it was, but it was ultimately an inability to find uh, appropriate directors and officers insurance that pushed them towards a uh, captive. 
We also had on that episode Mike Parrish of Marsh Captive Solutions in Bermuda co-hosting that episode. And he explained that while Bermuda was proving to be an attractive domicile for the legalized cannabis sector, the regulator would not license a captive insuring a business which is operating where cannabis is illegal at federal level. And of course, that is the case uh, here in the United States. So I guess the reason I'm telling you that is because that means that the captive domicile options for a US cannabis business, those options are increasingly restricted. And I have been asking around for a few months now to find out if any onshore US captive states, captive domiciles are actively promoting or licensing captives, insuring businesses in in the cannabis industry. The answer, uh, at least publicly for now, the answer I'm getting is no, none of us are licensing them. But as I'm sure some of you are aware, that's not quite the case. I'm aware of at least two states which have set up a captive or similar vehicle or risk retention groups to ensure cannabis business, but they just don't want to really shout about it or go public right now. And perhaps some of the reasons for that are obvious. But Cassie, I thought it would be a good place to start then before we get into all of this debate. You know, it would be helpful if you could just clarify for our live audience and for our listeners kind of what the legal standing is of cannabis today in the US and why that is problematic for setting up a captive. Cannabis is illegal federally. So that is a problem for banking and insurance. But one in three Americans now lives in a state where cannabis is fully legal for adult use. And that number is growing as more and more states are part of the domino effect. Um, It's spreading toward the Midwest now. It's been in the Northeast for a while. But there are thousands of ancillary cannabis-related companies. Like I said, they don't have access to banking and insurance. So there are actually a couple of admitted carriers uh, in California and most recently Arizona, but they only offer E&O, Arizona Missions, directors and officers, and cyber and They are full of restrictions. It's not really insurance in the sense that they're going to cover anything. Maybe, Richard, just because we're in Connecticut, we just legalized adult use cannabis on July 1st of this year, and we're in the process of setting up that market. And so I think this is very timely. Yeah, and we're going to come on to Connecticut in a second, because I definitely do have a few questions to find out what the latest state of play there is. But PJ, in terms of that broader captive domicile question, obviously, as president of the of the local captive association, I presume you talk to some of your peers in other jurisdictions. What are you hearing, if anything, from other states or other US captive domiciles on this topic? Is it something people are talking about? Are people trying to work out if it's possible, how they can do it? What, what the uh, challenges and obstacles are? So yes, everyone is talking about it. Very few people are publicly talking about it. And that's why I think today is a really interesting conversation. I do know there are individual companies trying to write policies, and some may claim they're doing it, and it may be out there. But one of the reasons we wanted to have this topic today and and have some of your broader perspective is this is a unique opportunity for the captive industry and a new burgeoning um, economic powerhouse. And again, make no mistake, there was a cannabis industry in Connecticut and the United States for many years. It just wasn't legal or license. So it's here, right? We always said in Connecticut, we have a $1.2 billion cannabis industry. Nobody wants to admit it, but it's here. So now we will have it regulated, approved, licensed. And with that comes the most important part of protecting these assets and, and helping to manage it, insurance. 
And you're right about cannabis business. Obviously, it's an emerging, it's a relatively new sector. For many, many years, that's where captives have been so valuable and so useful to companies is in that growth phase. If, if it is a new risk, we saw with the gig economy, particularly like uh, ride-sharing companies, they've embraced captives because they couldn't get suitable coverage. Now, cannabis is even more unique. I guess cryptocurrency comes into that as well. We've seen quite a few cryptocurrency captives set up. When I say cryptocurrency, I mean captives insuring cryptocurrency businesses, not necessarily captives which are using crypto for, for capitalization. We're going to come on to some of the kind of banking and asset management challenges in a moment with Jack. But let's talk a bit more about Connecticut then, because obviously it's great, PJ, as you say, you've put on this panel to kind of address this topic head on. Can you tell us what the situation is in Connecticut today in regarding cannabis, purely on the broader side, what's been legalized, when did that happen? And in terms of the captive insurance question, is it even up for discussion at this point in terms of can you do something in Connecticut? Yeah. So in Connecticut in 2013, we legalized medical use cannabis in the state. And we currently have four producers and 19 dispensaries, we call them retail stores. And just here, we legalized adult use cannabis. And we're in the middle of a process right now that will empower that and, and regulate and set up that industry. One important component that Connecticut uh, authorities and legislators really wanted to focus on was the social equity part of it, Richard. And that is unique, I think, in that Connecticut tried to do it the right way. So in, in our law, 50% of all the licenses in every category will be set aside for social equity applicants in advance. That means those individuals who are going to be brought into this economic business are going to need a lot of help and support. Part of the restorative justice part of this law was to empower individuals who had been unfairly discriminated for many years. And this is a whole nother panel, Richard, on, on yeah. why that happened. And we don't want to get into it now, but suffice to say, the insurance department here, the captive insurance division is also very supportive and focused on that social equity part of the industry. And they're going to need as much or more help. We, we all think, I think many of us on the panel have had these discussions, that the captive insurance industry is probably the best innovative and flexible way to help both existing companies, new companies, but most importantly, that critical social equity part of our law. Make no mistake, if it wasn't focused on social equity, that law would not have passed in Connecticut. And so that's the goal of this governor. That's the goal of the department. And again, without speaking out of school, there have been initial discussions about what could the department do to help facilitate and encourage and make sure every person who is eligible and wants to get a license can get one and get insurance. And he, in, in the law, it does require a, a report back to the legislature by the insurance commissioner in January of what that market will look like. So we're anxiously awaiting that report. As I said before, I'm just glad it's been discussed publicly because I think one, and this is will be familiar to Cassie's heard me say this many times before, and other listeners of the pod will have done as well. Captive industry has got has got a mixed reputation going back a number of years. I think in large part it's it's been cleaned up, and I just think that it would be great to have that honesty from regulators if they're licensing them. Great, let's talk about it. 
if they're not licensing them, great. I mean, Vermont have always been very clear. They don't license them. Um, there are other states who I know are doing it. I would just be good to have that kind of bit more transparency. You haven't got to tell us who those businesses are, but if states think that they can regulate, can license and regulate cannabis captives, then they should absolutely be talking about it. Um, Jack, we, we touched right at the beginning about, obviously, with it being federally illegal, and banking being federally regulated as opposed to insurance, which is state regulated, that creates some real challenges for cannabis businesses on the banking side first, and that obviously impacts uh, insurance. So Jack, what are some of the challenges on the investment management and banking side for a hypothetical captive wanting to write US cannabis related risk? Obviously, when you're talking about uh, insurance companies and you're talking about asset management, the one fungible thing is, is money. And you have to get the cash from wherever it starts into the banking system. And then you needed to get it to investment managers such as myself. And as you pointed out, there's, there's a federal regulations regarding banking uh, and money transfers. And then there are state regulated entities, uh, community banks, et cetera. And what's happening now is because cannabis is illegal on a federal level, putting money from a cannabis business, a drug business, and inserting it into the banking system and wiring it around the country, around the world, is a violation of, of federal law. And you can be in very big trouble for doing that. So cannabis uh, just, uh, dispensaries, uh, manufacturers, uh, producers, retailers, uh, they've ended up basically doing all of their business in cash because you can't even use a Visa card to buy this stuff because that goes through national networks. So now you have these, in some cases, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in cash that needs to be moved, needs to be protected, needs to be moved, and needs to get into the banking system. In the old days, we used to call that money laundering. And it still is on a federal level. But on a state level, these dispensaries can put money into community banks or state chartered banks where, the, where there is no national connection. The problem is, how do you then take that money and transfer it into an investment company, uh, such as the company I work for or any other company, and not violate the laws in terms of having it managed. And so I've, I, you know, I've talked to a, a bunch of people about this. And again, same sort of type of feedback that you've gotten. Yes, they're doing uh, captives for Canadian cannabis companies because it's federally legal in Canada. But in the United States, no one has been able to tell me about any real asset management for, for cannabis companies. Well, we're going to come on separately in a moment to things like the SAFE Act and the Claim Act, which could, which could be a game changer. But for now, Jack, in the current environment, you mentioned there, obviously, uh, cannabis businesses are having to use kind of, uh, kind of uh, one state credit unions or, or kind of state banks. Does that mean that where we are going to see captives, and this is what I've heard on the grapevine, is that where there have been a couple of US domicile captives established, they've been established in one state, the captive domicile. The business is a kind of one state cannabis business, and it's just insuring business from that state. That seems like that's the only way at the moment where this could be legitimately done without running into some of those money laundering or falling foul of federal regulation. Absolutely. And again, it, so one problem has sort of been solved in the sense of community banks. And there have even been some associations that have formed to spread cannabis money among different banks in the states because there's further state regulations about how much cannabis money any individual bank can have. So now you end up with this sort of a, uh, a way to distribute that amongst these state chartered banks. The problem is when you try to then move that 
into an investment company because there is no such thing, as far as I know, uh, of a state chartered investment company. Because if you're going to purchase securities, those are transactions that are typically going through New York or London or they're global transactions. So right now, there doesn't appear to be any legal way for any of that money to be anything other than deposited in a state bank. You can't, Not yet. You can't invest it. Not yet. Not yet. I said uh, up until now, there doesn't right. appear so that's to be where anywhere. Connecticut comes in, Richard. So, I mean, and, and even with my firm, um, and I work for Oppenheimer, I, I've posed the question all the way to the highest levels of the firm. You know, will we manage money for a an insurance company? Because I know the answer, oh, will we manage money for a cannabis company? And the answer would be no. But for I said, will we manage a, uh, money for an insurance company that insures the cannabis business? And I got that most famous answer. We'll think about it. Uh, yeah. And it's, it and, it's, and it's a definite maybe. And we didn't even get an it depends, but they're but they are looking at they're looking into it. So I, I thought that was a huge step over. No, which is what would have been the answer, say, a couple of years ago. But as as we all know, captives and prospective captive owners, they need certainty, right? They need to have. And it's good, as you say, Jack, that it's not. A no at the moment. It's a it's a definitely maybe. Uh, but captive owners obviously do need certainty. At some point, they need to have a banking partner. PJ, just expand for me there. You said that's where Connecticut comes in. So I know that these discussions are yet to be added fully, and I think there's consultations to be had. But what, where do you see the opportunity then? Is the first opportunity, if there is one, that kind of Connecticut only state business? Yes, I think the opportunity lies with those domiciles like Connecticut that are innovative, forward thinking, and willing to look at helping businesses grow. I do think there is an inherent, because much like insurance, cannabis will end up being a state-by-state regulated industry. There is definitely, very similar to alcohol in in the United States, Richard, are state-by-state regulations. I think it will likely be those states that can think outside the box and be more innovative will be able to foster innovation, create unique and maybe solution-based things, Jack. I'm I'm curious if even a captive could be a money management entity for these kinds of things. Well, I, I, you know, I I think there's the opportunity is gigantic and there's no question about it. You talked about the size of the industry when it was illegal. One has to assume the the size will be possibly even larger when it's legal. Um, because there are some people that don't want to participate in illegal industries, but but the but I think the 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 point is that is for for people that are involved in asset management, um, this is a huge opportunity for banks. This is a huge opportunity for the captive insurance industry. This is a huge opportunity. So I've never seen a situation where an opportunity is so large and someone hasn't tried to address it and get it solved. Um, so I'm uh, 100% confident this is going to be solved and it's going to be solved sooner rather than later. We're just in a transition phase now where, as Cassie was pointing out, just a few years ago, there were hardly any legal cannabis states. Now they're growing and it's a domino effect. Now all the neighboring states are saying, well, if they're doing it, we're going to do it. Yeah, so they're realizing, I mean, it's, I think, over $43 billion is predicted in cannabis sales in the next five years. But people will be looking to Connecticut for not just banking, but insurance. I mean, there's no underwriting for a cannabis company. We just don't have that industry data. 
So people will be looking to the regulators here in Connecticut on how they're regulating, and then also using data that we're going to start collecting that no one else has. So Richard, one point I, I just want to make, because I think this is important to the state by state, no state, and I think that's what you're seeing in Michigan, other will want to be the magnet for all cannabis insurance. So I think it will be a very measured, predictable, and, and, and focused on businesses in our state. And that's appropriate. I agree with you. And I think it's interesting what Cassie says there about the underwriting, because, because these businesses, and there are small businesses, there are large multinational cannabis businesses now, but it, it's, that, it's, it's such, I think this was Mike Parrish that said this to me from Marsh on, on, on the Global Captive podcast episode earlier this year, but it's the full gamut of, it's agriculture, it's transportation, it's tech, it's retail, like it's a huge industry of many different sectors within it, which will pose lots of the same um, insurance challenges that those sectors, you know, agriculture, transportation, retail have previously faced, but just in a much more legally uncertain and much more volatile uh, market as it as it as it grows and grows. And as I said, those two Canadian companies that set up captives in Bermuda in the past 18 months, it was purely direct, it was purely driven by directors and officers insurance. Because unsurprisingly, working in this kind of business with a DNO market which is already completely distressed and not really fit for purpose. Cannabis, they're just not going to get cannabis businesses, whether it's in a federally legal country or not, they're just not going to get DNO capacity at, at, at affordable rates, which is why they've had to go down the go on the captive uh, route. So Cassie, in terms of the legal landscape, I, I mentioned in passing the SAFE Act and the Claim Act, from what I understand, they look to address some of the banking and possibly insurance issues. So what do we think needs to change? And will those piece of legislation potentially help the situation? Yeah, so I'm just going to start by saying what those actually are. The SAFE Act is a Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking Act. And then the claim is Clarifying Law Around Insurance of Marijuana Act. So together, these acts are creating a safe harbor for banking and insurance. So it's going to be huge when that does pass, and I think it will. But until then... Uh, we're going to have to figure it out on a state level. That is, those two are currently pending. Richard, if I could, and working off of Cassie, one thing I've heard, and I have some clients in the industry, they often pay four, five, six times what a normal business they're being charged at. I'm not sure they really have insurance, though, is what <laughs> I think yeah. what's going on is there are very good salespeople in certain parts of our industry that are selling these policies or at least selling what they purport to be policies. But they're right. selling, they're selling a paper that says you're insured. If you think about it, yes, there's the sort of the agribusiness part of it that you mentioned, you know, it's farming and transportation. So, you know, you're going to need, you know, trucking insurance and everything else that's involved. But, but if you take it right down to the small businessman, and you talked about the mandate the state had, inequity. So you're talking about people that might be new to business. They might not have massive amounts of capitalization. These are people that absolutely need insurance. They need real insurance beyond, you know, E&O or D&O insurance. Absolutely. And that's where I think that the Connecticut department's very forward thinking. They're trying to think about that. The other interesting part of a social equity issue, and I don't know, those of you who are underwriters in the industry, and I learned this kind of the hard way, the best business people in this industry were recognized by our government as criminals. That's a fact. 
the best growers, the best production, the best marketing were in the eyes of the law and the government, bad criminals. Now that's not the case today as we go through this change, but realize that when you go to underwrite a new business, the best operator may have served significant amount of time in state and federal prison. I don't know how that shows up on an underwriting report. That's where captives, I think, can step in and really look to the people, the goals, and try and work with them. And could be really profitable, too. When it is federally legal, it's going to take the commercial insurance market at least two years to catch up. And there's not going to be the underwriting data. There's not going to be the regulation in many states yet. So I think we can really pave the way on how do we want this regulated and captives will give that flexibility, you know, do a feasibility study. And I think as well, I think two years catching up is, is generous to the commercial insurance market. They can't even provide fit for purpose, uh, cyber insurance cover. And it's been about 15 years of them trying to do that. So I think the, the commercial market will not, it will not touch this quickly, even when it has been legalized at federal level. And, and that's the moment where captives will have a great chance to step in. And there should be plenty of opportunities for group captives. You know, the US is obviously the best market in the world for, for setting up group and association captives. We know another captive we featured on the pod this year is a group captive set up by the National Cannabis Risk Management Association. They set up a group captive in Nevis, uh, I think, uh, at, towards the end of last year as well uh, for smaller uh, cannabis companies to, to come together. So there's going to be lots of opportunities uh, I presume there'll be opportunities for, for sale captives as well. I think as soon as either uh, financial sector and the insurance sector can, can find the right way around this challenge, and the captive industry has always been the most innovative part of the insurance industry, or it's made federally legal, I think the number of captives set up in this sector will be will be significant because it's a, it's a new emerging sector, fast growing and no pun intended. And it's, uh, it's got a lot of insurance money. To, it's got a lot of money to spend on insurance because they need it. You know, we haven't even mentioned workers' compensation. There's, there's some of these growers have obviously huge numbers of staff. And also, I think one of the things that's going to drive this is also the ability to invest the money. Because yeah. if there's no ability yeah. to invest the money, it doesn't eliminate the need or the desire or the the utility of a captive, but it diminishes the captive's profitability, or alternatively, you could look at it, it raises their expenses because a well-managed captive investment program can cover the cost of the captive, return additional capital, and create a, a growing asset base to overall protect the businesses, or particularly in things like risk retention groups, group captives, other kinds of situations like this, where there may be uh, sharing of liabilities. So I think that one of the other driving factors is actually getting investment firms to be able to invest this money, which will make people who are involved in the cannabis industry perhaps more keen on getting a captive because they get that ancillary benefit. Well, I imagine we've got brokers and captive managers in the room, and I'm sure they've all had an inquiry at least from a business in the cannabis sector because they are all looking for insurance. And, and if they hear about captives, they're going to want to ask questions. And, and maybe the answer at the moment is is not yet, which is a shame. But uh, as you all say, I think it's ready to come when it's made possible. But I know that there's a session at half past the hour, so I'm going to start wrapping it up there. But I'd just like to say thank you to everyone involved at the Connecticut Captive Insurance Association for having me and, and for facilitating this. I would love to have been uh, there in person. I had booked flights. I had booked hotel. Um, I was meant to be there. And unfortunately, it was just 
the uh, our entry into the US was put back by a week, so it, it got scuppered. But I do appreciate PJ, you and the team uh, going ahead with this. So thank you to to PJ, Jack, and and Cassie, and please do give them a round of applause. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Stay safe. Stay well. And uh, see you next time, captives.